0: Hello, and welcome to the all-new Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles, literary director here at the bookshop. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to spend even more of 2022 at Kilometre Zero in Paris, you can now subscribe for just three euros a month. For that, you'll get regular bonus episodes, hand-picked classic interviews from our archives, as well as early access to complete chapters from friends of Shakespeare and Company, read Ulysses. You can now sign up directly in Apple Podcasts or for users of all other podcast apps through Patreon. Links to both are available in the show notes. All money raised through these subscriptions goes to supporting Friends of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop's non-profit, created to fund our non-commercial activities, from the Upstairs Reading Library to the Rights in Residence programme to our charitable collaborations and our free events. We're very grateful for your support. Every so often, a book comes along that seems to unite readers, critics, juries and booksellers of all stripes in almost unbounded admiration. Meg Mason's Sorrow and Bliss is such a book. Early on in the novel, we learn that Martha, our narrator, has separated from her husband, Patrick, something having turned so rotten in their relationship that she finds herself not only hating the man she once loved, but imagining and even enacting violence against him. It soon becomes obvious that Martha is extremely intelligent and yet also unable or perhaps unwilling to identify the root cause of her profound and perennial unhappiness. Thankfully, Martha exists within a constellation of family members, her sister Ingrid, her artist mother and poet father, her bourgeois aunt, uncle and cousins, whose presence, often as antagonistic as it is supportive, begins to allow her and us to tease out an understanding. But can Martha's bad behaviour be put down to some condition or is a lot of it rather just how she is? Sorrow and Bliss manages to be intensely wry while never being cruel, and also often deeply affecting. It is a staggeringly frank portrayal of a troubled mind, and yet repeatedly laugh-out-loud funny, particularly in its painfully authentic and tender portrayal of familial relationships, all of which is a testament to Meg Mason's extraordinary talent, precision and humanity as a writer. As we record, Sorrow and Bliss is at number one on the UK paperback chart, as well as on the shortlist for the Women's Prize for Fiction. And I'm delighted to say that Meg Mason joins me today. Meg, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast.
1: Thank you so much. It's just such a joy to be here.
0: It's such a pleasure to have you with us. And as I said in the introduction, it's rare for uh, all of our booksellers, essentially, to unite in uh, in admiration and love for uh, a particular book. And Sorrow and Bliss is such a book. So uh, first of all, I'd just like to thank you uh, on behalf of all of us at Shakespeare and Company for this uh, it's absolutely oh wonderful, uh, wonderful. Oh my
1: goodness! Oh my goodness! I can't imagine it because you must have such disparate tastes. It sort of doesn't make sense that you could all sort of settle and agree on one thing, and certainly not my one thing. So <laughs> that's just so <laughs> lovely to know. Well, so let's
0: let's try and sort of unpick a little bit about what what makes this um, this book so special. I think for me, to begin with, the thing that struck me within the first page essentially is Martha's voice. It comes across as so clear, so distinct, um, so particular, so amusing. Um, and I'm curious about how it came to you. Was 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 Martha a character that rose up in you almost sort of fully formed, or was she somebody you had to tease out? Sort of was she hard one on the page?
1: She rose up fully formed, but only because. I had spent the previous year digging a hole and kind of burying everything into it and packing the earth down on top of it and then trying to disinter. I mean, it was just, I I worked on this entire manuscript that I've sort of talked about before, but it's hard to tell the story of Saremblis without mentioning it because It was it was so formative, you know. No one's seen it, but all of the roots of of the novel are there because it was everything that Sauron Bliss isn't. So mm. um, it was not funny, and it was you know far too dark with no purpose to the darkness. The characters were uninteresting and i didn't care about them so i'm not sure why i thought anybody else would care about them and it was (laughs) when it was going so wrong which was really from the very beginning um and you mentioned use the word rotten to describe martha and patrick's relationship and i i have so often described the manuscript that way including when i was working Mm. on it that it just felt there was just something at its core that i you know i couldn't clean it out essentially um and so it was the third person and, and the more out of hand it got, the the more sort of I lost control of it, the harder I tried to make it literary and novelistic and, mm. you know, sort of lyrical, which is not my way at all. And it's not even what I like to read, but I think it came out of my own sort of pretension. And so when mm. I sat down after this huge sort of intervention on myself, I suppose, you know, six weeks of not writing and lots of tears in a sense that it was all over when I sat down to write again and it wasn't to redraft that book and it wasn't to write a different novel it was just to write because that's what I do um suddenly Martha there and Patrick came to me in the context of that first scene which is the two of them at a wedding and I sort of knew them as characters but I'd never seen any sympathy between them or any sort of almost this intimate cooperation which is when they were in that scene and there was that woman all of a sudden who was by herself and struggling with the canopy and they went over to her. (laughs) I suddenly was intrigued by the dynamic between them. But to Mm. actually write it, the key was to switch it to the first person because it's much harder to put ridiculous lyrical words in a a character's mouth. Um, It sort of forces you to actually talk in a way that you might talk. But also as a sort of reaction to what I had done and all the sort of agony of it, my sort of guide for myself rather than a rule but but what I wanted to do sort of committed to do was just to let Martha tell you what happened Mm -hmm. that was sort of the the modus so that unless she would text it to you in that language or talk to you in that language on the phone I wasn't going to use it and there was sort of you know even rules that I got down to that have made their way you know as sort of private jokes with myself into the novel about Mm -hmm. thesaurus.com and if I didn't know the word I wasn't allowed uh-huh. to use it. So, and if I didn't know, I didn't need it. So there, there were sort of things like that. And I think that's where the strange, slightly strange tone, I guess, of the novel comes out overall. Um, That's where it comes mm-hmm. from. And I think that's turned out for the good in the sense that if I was writing about topics like this, especially around the mental illness and in the really dark patches, can you imagine if it was in Florida mm-hmm. language? It would just <laughs> be too much. So thank goodness, I, I think I found that to just settle on is here's what happened
0: yeah yeah, yeah. And I think that sort of underlines the um, the sense of authenticity we get as um, as readers as well, because uh, I think sometimes you know this use of florid language can be a way to essentially disguise what um, what the what the, the character or the, the writer is is thinking about in a way. And one thing that that um, Martha doesn't do is is disguise, is hide herself from the reader.
1: Mm, it's true I mean she's lying about herself constantly but mm. only in a only in a way I mean she truly believes what she's saying it's just that it isn't yeah. true and so yeah. um I think that allows her you know to do it and she is working out as she goes along what she actually sort of is thinking and saying and you realize you know you sort of find out at the end why it is that she's actually writing what she's writing or, mm-hmm. or speaking it out so um I think so and and sometimes it I think what I've come to appreciate and what I read as well is that something doesn't have to be sort of aggressively intelligent to be literary or to be just Mm -hmm. to be good and just to be something that you sort of want to read. And it's almost a relief sometimes, isn't it? Like when you pick up a novel and it doesn't feel, you know, you don't feel (laughs) aggressed by the author's need to kind of impress you. You just, they just Mm -hmm. tell you a story that's interesting and that should Mm -hmm. be enough. It's, it's what I want to feel is enough.
0: Mm -hmm. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because you say tell you a story, but as you just um, implied in your answer, there are several stories being told through this. There's a story that Martha is telling, which is, as as you say, sort of she's she's frank, but she is lying to herself at times. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then there's the story which is told, in a sense, through the dynamic between her and the people around her. So mm-hmm. I think particularly the dynamic between her and Patrick and her and Ingrid. Um, and that that struck me as that must have been quite a difficult thing technically to do as a writer, to have these almost sort of two parallel uh, sort of un- unveilings of Martha going on to the reader at the same time. There's her sort of her personal journey to self-discovery, if you like, and what she reveals through the ways that she interacts with um, with those close to her.
1: I think it would have been if I was attempting to write... I don't know what it's called in fiction, but in journalism it's called a write-through where it's all just continuous. Um, mm. and there's no sort of breaks or interruption. But because it's got that vignette style, it really is like Martha's just suddenly changed the topic and or changed the subject, uh-huh. and she's now going to tell you this. And then she sort of drops in those little observations. So while Patrick probably dominates what you know the the right through to that extent the vignettes are all about Ingrid they tend to be about Mm -hmm. her and they get most of the heavy lifting done in terms of Mm. the characterization of Ingrid but also the only time that you can really if you were really looking for the truth about Martha those are the times those are the sections where it will be revealed kind of by accident almost so there are there are the ways you know she can be sort of very cruel and dismissive about mothers not being a mother herself. Mm. But if you look sort of closely at the way she talks about Ingrid's children, um, you know, her, her, nephews, there's such kindness and sort of sensitivity there. So I mm. think that it was probably, I don't know if I looked at it, I wonder if it would always be that, that those are the ways you know that's the division is between the longer sections mm-hmm. and the shorter sections. Maybe it's that, but it's so interesting because you never know what you're doing until you've done it, and someone right. actually points to it and says, "Oh, you did yeah, this." And you're yeah. like, "Did
0: I?" <laughs> one one quick aside on the subject of authenticity. One one of the things that I do, as somebody who's like as a British person who has now been outside of the country for close to 17 years, Gosh. um, the. The intense Britishness of this novel, I found both in, in a lot of its references, whether that be to certain sort of high street stores or or little things like that, but also the the ways in which the the characters interact with each other seem to me sort of imbued with. With 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 this sort kind of unmistakable Britishness, and yet our listeners will hear, you know, if, if even if they haven't read your bio, that you're yeah, that I'm a complete accents,
1: imposter. You're... <laughs> exactly. You're not
0: British at oh, all. <laughs> but but is that something that you felt when writing these characters? Do they feel in some way slightly foreign to you through their Britishness, or is there something sort of universal about the way that they they interact, or at least close enough to to what you you know from your uh, time growing up and in New Zealand to sort of, uh, to, 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 to to make it
1: universal. Yeah, no, that's so interesting. I think part of it is, part of it is wish fulfillment and aspiration Mm -hmm. and sort of, you know, thinking the best part of the job is that you get to transport yourself and be somewhere else and live lots of lives that you would otherwise not get to live. And so that's sort of, I suppose, why on the very surface level, I chose it, but I think as well, there's a spectrum that I run up and down when it comes Mm -hmm. to writing fiction and the actual occupation, which is probably self-consciousness on the far left and on the far right, all out shame. I find the whole (laughs) thing so mortifying to confess to, you know, to confess to it as an aspiration and to tell people what I do with my day and, Mm -hmm. you know, what it sort of involves because it's it's not really a real job i mean it doesn't mm-hmm. in some ways it doesn't need to be done and i think <laughs> one of the ways that i manage that is to put it really far away from myself so i could never again write a novel set in sydney or set in australia because it's all just too close but i sort of
0: mm-hmm. you know
1: in my tiny little garden shed i think well maybe it is all happening in in you know on the other side of the world and it, somehow it feels less ridiculous but i think as well i mean there's just there's a class element to the book that wouldn't work here Uh in terms of the way that class manifests between celia and winsome who are who's martha's mother and her aunt Mm -hmm. i don't think our class system operates quite as overtly and i think that just what i tend to find funny is just from a a childhood and an adulthood of british comedy and so Mm -hmm. it couldn't it couldn't really be if i you know to the extent that i was just telling you what happened I was telling you what I find funny, and that's mm-hmm. what it is. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> you mentioned um uh Martha's mother and uh and wits of her sister. And like the 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 idea, I guess, of sorority of sisterhood is crucial to uh, to this book. Uh the and and I guess in in a in a sort of a in a broader sense, the way that siblings then relate to each other, but also um, to, but also to to their parents. Uh, for for listeners who haven't yet read um, read Sorrow and Bliss, would you just be able to give us a little sort of description of the 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 family that which, um,
1: oh, uh, which Martha comes from and the
0: dynamic of which they? Offer. Yes,
1: which after a year and a half of talking about this book, I've never been asked to do that before. So that's a really lovely thing to actually <laughs> have to think about. So beyond Martha and Patrick, who met when they were teenagers. There's Ingrid, her sister, who's 14 months younger than her. So they're essentially, I mean, they're effectively twins. Patrick mm. is has, you know, they've met, or indeed as Martha says, they never met, he was just always there, because he came with her cousin to a family Christmas as a sort of boarding school stray who'd been left you know, to languish at boarding school by his expatriate banker father who forgot to book him a ticket. So after that first Christmas, he just becomes, you know, he's a return guest and eventually, you know, a piece of the furniture. Um, That is, so there's the cousins, Oliver and Nicholas and, jessamine and then their parents are winsome and roland which sounds like so many when i'm actually listing them but somehow they sort of all move in these mass i mean you really only meet the cousins at christmas that's sort of a recurring mm-hmm. um piece of structure throughout the book because that's you know when you see patrick continue coming back and the evolution of of that sort of relationship from meeting to falling in love um so that's that's who they are but i think the It's funny because The Cousins, when I was on that break between the previous manuscript and starting again, my publisher said to me, you need to just go away and find the joy in what you're doing and Mm -hmm. find joy to put into the book, you know, by extension, because I had definitely, definitely wrung all of that out of the previous one Mm -hmm. and made sure no joy got into it at all. (laughs) And when I was sort of really, you know, and I'm not the cheeriest person naturally by disposition, but when I really, really sat down and tried to think, what gives me joy or had given me joy in life it was my cousins and it was Christmas Mm. and you know my cousins used to live over the fence and we were always back and forth and and there's just that incredible relationship that cousins have and siblings even more that you're just in it together and you're so bound Mm. to each other and you share this experience that's just beyond explaining you just know because you were you know you were there and so I think that's why it needed to be, especially with Ingrid, it couldn't be a friend, you know, that Martha had. It couldn't mm-hmm. have been a close friend. It had to be a sister because through all of that agony of, you know, what Martha goes through with her illness, Martha, sorry, Ingrid doesn't leave because she mm-hmm. can't leave, but a friend could mm-hmm. leave and would have left years and years and years before Ingrid sort of we see her even falter for the first time.
0: Mm-hmm. That's uh, uh, That that idea of um, sort of this this closeness being sort of, uh, utterly, utterly sort of bound together. I think it's sort of crucial in our in our getting to know uh, Martha and getting to know the the people around her, because there is so much um, behaviour as you say, which people if they weren't connected by familial ties would likely Absolutely. walk away
1: from. Absolutely, and again, I didn't really set out to um, to show what her, an illness like hers would do to mm. the extended family and sort of the shockwaves way but the amazing thing has been that readers have sort of reflected that back and said oh Mm -hmm. you know said things like i am the patrick in this book or i am the whoever and they have felt like there's some sort of representation that they might not have seen before of how it affects the family Mm -hmm. um but i think with ingrid especially because you know you do see martha behaving terribly and she obviously attracts kind of conversation around is she likable is she awful is she your own worst Mm -hmm. enemy but my defense (laughs) for her is that she and ingrid are exactly the same person it's just one of them Mm -hmm. got ill and one of them didn't and i can Mm -hmm. promise you that they're the same person because they began as the same person and they were going to be two halves of martha's imagining Mm -hmm. and ingrid You know, in inverted commas, would be the version of her who didn't get ill. And so this was going Mm. to be a a sort of telling of this is what my life would have been. And then when you really look at Uh. it and you sort of, you know, ignore the way Martha tells it and look at the actual sort of fundamental biographies and the fundamental characters. Ingrid's just as awful. She's just as awful to her <laughs> husband. She's terrible. She's mostly on non-speaking terms with her mother. You know, she's she's much much meaner, or at least as mean. You know, in the observations they make about strangers, and and so I think, but it's just because Martha gives you the best of Ingrid because she loves her and she doesn't love herself yeah. in that way.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting thought. This idea of kind of in um, in each other's imaginings, because one thing that um, comes across as the book advances. Is this sense of how, I guess, sort of roles in families are projected onto each other, and perceptions of, uh, of of other people in the family are inherited from from our parents, from our from our elder siblings, and things like that. I think particularly of the very striking moment when um, Martha s- sees Winsome play the piano, um, and she she says, "My perception of Winsome belonged to my mother." I thought of her as old, Punctilia, as someone without an interior life or worthwhile passions, and then she just has this moment where this, her image of Winsome, you sort of rather see someone guess, truly,
1: yeah, outside their job yeah. description in the family. It's true, and that I'm so interested in roles, and I often think, you know. Christmas when it comes to our jobs and our roles in a family Christmas is like the regional Mm -hmm. annual conference do you you know when everybody (laughs) is sort of held up for their performance and held to you know their KPIs and it's just that's when it all really comes to comes to a head and so that was a brilliant opportunity to do it but I think I am so interested in it and I think it it needs to be in this novel because Martha's trying to work out what her job is or what her Mm -hmm. place is really. And is she just the difficult one in the family? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's kind of been her lifelong question since she was 17 and first became ill. You know, is this her, is it the illness? Is she being seen truly for who she is or does does she even see herself that way? And um, but it's all kind of blurred by this 20 year um, buildup accretion of shame which mm-hmm. I find such an interesting thing because when I was still a journalist, I once wrote a feature about shame as a mm-hmm. specific emotion and learned through it that whereas there are sort of, you know, with anger or sadness, there's usually some chemical aspect to them or some, you know, purposeful function to them. Mm-hmm. Shame has no function and it's sort of a narrative emotion. So it it what you tend to do with it is you settle on a story. And then mm-hmm. shame sort of gives you the evidence for it and builds up around. So everything Martha says is evidence to that. You know, it stokes it and she sort of talks mm. about that. And then sort of shame just confirms that narrative. So that's what she's sort of trying to untangle is what's the story, what's really real and what is, you know, this kind of overlay of, of how she feels about herself.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sense of shame is a fascinating one as well, because in in many ways, and this might be a little bit glib, but like, a lot of the way Martha acts could be seen as somewhat shameless in a fact or might of at least course, be labeled. Yeah, that.
1: absolutely. But, but if you, again, if you look at the way she casts it, she's never proud, you know, she doesn't mm. throw the hairdryer at Patrick and say, oh, and he deserved it. You know, she's mm. mortified in the whole telling and, and the kind of, I guess mm. it's like, I'm, you know, putting myself on trial, but the, The way I know that that is true is that when I got to the end of the novel, you know, and was sort of in the copy edit phase, you often will do a find and replace on words that you know, you're Mm. particularly susceptible to overusing actuallys or slightlys, or actually you should just (laughs) remove all the slightlys according to my edits. But um, so I did actually, and I did even though, and although, and then I was like, Oh, just do sorry. And I'll just do apology. Mm. And there were, Something like forty-one actually is that I wanted to cut by a half, and then mm. there was something like two hundred and fifty sorries or apologies in a three hundred wow. and something-page book, and so that's how I know that the whole thing okay. is an apology letter, and her shamelessness is is quite the opposite.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although it's 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 interesting because um, while you say she she's never proud, um, and and, she, and and I think that's definitely the case concerning specific actions. There is also this sense we get quite early on, and I think she's told it as a couple of times by different characters, is she clearly considers herself special or exceptional in some ways. Yes,
1: she does. And I imagine that that would be, if I really imagine her as a real person, that is clearly a sort of reaction to feeling so out of control you know and so mystified by what it is that's actually making your decisions for you and you know when she feels that her sort of emotional life or her maturity has been arrested at the point that she became ill I think that you would almost for your own self need to build some story around well this is because I'm different and different means special and I'm sort of above quotidian things I think you grasp anything don't you when you're trying to sort mm-hmm. of solidify your sense of self or shore it up in in any way because she is constantly casting about for the for the you know for the answer to this mystery of who she actually mm-hmm. is
0: yeah 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 let's talk about the the condition the illness um which we've we've, we've evoked a few times um I'm sure you've been asked this many times before <laughs> but one of the things that's very striking to readers is your choice not to name a condition. So mm-hmm. uh, without giving too much away to people who haven't read it, there is a moment where she is diagnosed and the diagnosis seems to be the correct one or at least the most accurate one she's received so far. Yeah. And it's represented in the book with a dash. Um, could you just talk a little bit about the, what underlied that decision in a book where so much else is...
1: Utterly sort of, described. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the point exactly, of, exactly. The point <laughs> of you know, overly fine, great detail. Because... Um, in all of the books that I've read about mental illness or featuring a mentally ill Mm -hmm. character, and they are brilliant and manifold, the Virginia Woolf's and the Janet Frames and, you know, much more modern titles as well, I have adored or been intrigued by the characters, but I've never wanted to be them. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to show somebody who was in some way aspirational as well as, you know, having something that we would want, whether it's just her sister relationship or her humour or something about her and if I had have said hypothetically um, she has a schizophrenia right away we've uncoupled from her if that's not our own experience mm. and immediately mm-hmm. our judgment comes you know it gets between us and the book. She's also trying to solve a mystery so by telling mm. you that up the front you know and it would be in the first line of the blurb and on Goodreads and sure, you know yeah. in the description we are now out in front of her and nothing she does is a surprise or a mystery to us. Mm -hmm. And we'd be sitting there sort of being like, well, that's because you have bipolar. That's because, you know, Mm -hmm. so there would be an answer that we would constantly have there. And I just think she would only get to be that thing. And then there was Mm -hmm. sort of moral questions as well around how would I feel if I was representing it wrongly, which I would be because Uh again, writing in secret, I wasn't careful. It wasn't for an audience. So I didn't care Mm -hmm. and I wasn't, cautious or accurate I didn't research it I just used whatever symptoms I knew from a whole host of different things and just you know Mm -hmm. put them all together to suit my story um but it just when you really think about it it just wouldn't work to have something in there and it it would be a book about one mental illness not illness which is what I wanted Mm -hmm. it to be about in that broad way and just to be about her lived experience of it rather than here's a book about schizophrenia and what it might look like in a person
0: yeah 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 and I, I think also um I think there was the it was the the moral um side to it which really i think resonated with me when i was when I was wondering about why uh why you had made this decision uh, because also I suppose once something is written in a book and given a label in a novel, it is in some way concretized, and one of the things that seems to be the case with a lot of mental illness is that they manifest themselves differently in almost every person of course so it and seem, you could never capture yeah.
1: it could you the typical experience it just doesn't mm-hmm. exist and you know I imagine it changes with age or circumstance I imagine it would be impacted by even your resources and your relationships you know your access of course to like different levels of medical care which Martha is very privileged in that mm-hmm. department and I just wasn't confident enough or or i don't think i should be confident enough to be like this is what it's like you know that's mm-hmm. that's not my right and also and this sounds peculiar but it would i think hurt people you know it mm-hmm. would it would the way martha talks about it she needs to be able to talk about it like that because she loathes that condition and she's angry mm-hmm. at it and she doesn't accept it and want to advocate for it and you know sort of be a poster person for mental health acceptance I mean she even jokes about not wanting to break down the stigma around it but that (laughs) that would be if you identified with her that wouldn't feel brilliant I imagine Mm -hmm. so I I think there was all of those reasons that once it was taken out I just realized that it, it could never have been there in the first place
0: yeah 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 and yeah I guess there's an irony as well because there is a moment where Martha reflects about how for her as a as a labels as a, are so yeah, helpful yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah
1: exactly yeah exactly yeah exactly but I, I think because that's what she's after and that's what mm. she feels so liberated by
0: mm. when she
1: actually when she actually you know is finally given that label that she wants because she you know i think and it's true in life that when we don't have an accurate label we still have a label mm. um of it's course, just made yeah. up and given to us by other people and it will usually have that sort of moral component to it of martha's difficult, you know, that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's worked quite well, I think, as well, in the sense that the people who've been really, really frustrated by it tend to be, from what I can tell of their sort of reviews and, you know, their comments, are the same people who are generally frustrated by her. And right. I sort of find that there's an irony there because they demand to know and they want to know and it enrages them that they don't know. And I'm like, well, neither does <laughs> she. That's the uh-huh. whole point. Do you think that might be why she's like that? Because look, it does mm-hmm. make you angry. Um, so that's yeah. been a nice little added, you know, slightly meta <laughs> element to it.
0: And what she also doesn't know is, well, you said that she, you know, when she gets this diagnosis, there is a sense of sort of liberation or maybe a mm. sense of relief as well. But I think what she doesn't anticipate is what kind of comes next, is mm. that then he is forced to reflect. Okay, is that a symptom of X, or is that me? Exactly. <laughs> because that's exactly. a it's we got don't to be often worked out. Have. No, yeah,
1: and yeah, yeah. and I think because the finding the diagnosis is a culmination, but it's also just the beginning because she's already burnt her life down at that point. Mm. So now she's got to sort of decide what to rebuild, what's beyond saving, and she goes through a sort of evolution I suppose from now that she does know or she feels that she knows what's her she is actually suddenly Mm -hmm. at liberty to grow up and make Mm. these decisions for herself and so obviously she has to cycle through that incredible rage at Patrick and at her mother and you know all of these people that she perceives should have helped her and should have known Mm. and you know let her suffer as she would probably say but then she does come around I think like she does start to take responsibility for the first time and actually be able to admit that these are the these are the parts where you know I'm responsible but it does get pretty ugly in there for a while between her and mm. you know her perception of Patrick.
0: Yeah 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 I'd like to come back to Patrick uh, in a moment because I realize we haven't spoken much about him but I but I I I I would also like to spend some more time with with Ingrid. Firstly, because I think that dynamic of the two sisters was, for me, one of the most uh, enjoyable and authentic and sort of tricksy of the book, I suppose. Um, and a lot of their adult relationship uh, is defined in a sense by the the divergent paths their lives mm-hmm, have taken mm-hmm. the fact that Ingrid has well I think when we meet her is it two kids and then three and
1: then you know yeah and just some et cetera, et cetera. uncountable <laughs> yeah exactly number of children
0: and and and, uh, and Martha doesn't and Martha doesn't have children and one thing that that really highlights in the the way they interact with each other is the way that uh society treats women differently whether they have children or don't Completely. have children. exactly. And not and necessarily I think, better one way or the other.
1: Yeah, although I also wonder whether, you know, the way that Ingrid, to my mind, gets, you know, she's more acclaimed or she's more, people tend to like her more as a character. Mm-hmm. I just wonder, you know, in terms of what we were talking about before, is she sainted or slightly immune because she has children? And so mm. we kind of give her, because motherhood is so, you know, supposedly sacred and, you know, mother's, sort of held up in some way as a superhuman mm. I sort of just think I wonder if that's why she gets a pass in the same way that Patrick gets a pass because his expression of his emotion is inward and we don't see it he doesn't blow up the way that Martha does mm. and so but I think yeah definitely with Ingrid I think there is something there around the fact that we you know even at the most basic level if you if she was someone you think well she's tired you know she has all these children of course she's you know but Martha doesn't have have that she has an invisible mm. reason for the way she is and I think it's much easier to blame her but I do I do love their relationship and I think one of the reasons why I in the end decided you know to actually make it much more um realistic as it were you know to make her a real character rather than this figment was something I read that Jeanette Winterson had had said mm. about oranges are not the only fruit and there's a character in there that's like an older woman who sort of comes alongside this young girl who's extremely lost and is sort of the only character to help her and support her and sort of protect her Mm. and Jeanette Winterson said there wasn't a Mrs. Something in real life I just needed to put her there because readers couldn't have borne it and that's kind of why Mm. Ingrid became real because readers couldn't bear that book without her there I think she's she's the breath of relief in between all those difficult bits Mm.
0: And she is, um, there's there's Martha a couple of times refers to when she's with Ingrid feeling as if they are in a force field mm-hmm. um, together. And obviously that is sort of their their isolation from the world, but it's also a sense of protection, I guess, she feels when she's close to to her sister.
1: Yeah, and I think Martha, I mean, Ingrid, sorry, is the person who always believes Martha. She's the one who always, mm. always, not that they have specific endless conversations about, you know Martha's mental illness or the way it manifests and they don't talk a great deal about specifics but she is always there and she doesn't she she for such a judgmental person she's not judgmental where her sister is concerned and she is the last one to yeah to get to the end it's Ingrid's the last one standing I mean apart from Mm -hmm. Fergus but her father but he's sort of on a slightly different plane but Mm -hmm. (laughs) she's the one who I think you know falters last because she is you know they are just so enmeshed and intertwined, and they just love each other so much.
0: Yeah, 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 and so very much on the same plane. And that's one of the things I loved about the way they talk to each other is it's it. I guess externally, so much of it seems so utterly like total cruel. rubbish. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, mean, but, and, know, yeah,
0: so mean, and yet, sort of, when you are within the their force field with them. You kind of un- you understand what's going on. I think you know anyone who has had a sort of a close sibling relationship knows that sort of that experience of it's all that shorthand
1: uh, and it's yeah exactly yes. and sort of when there's a scene I think where they've gone to Wales together and they're talking about um, Ingrid wants Martha to tell a story about their childhood that they remember and they talk about the sudden appearance and proliferation of African art in the house and it's mm. really insignificant. And it doesn't need to be there. And, you know, if I was over word count, I could have easily lifted it out. But I think those are the things that no one outside your childhood would know that there was a uh, you know eight week period when all of these juju masks appeared or, you know, but, <laughs> but there they were and, and they sort of have that little moment together and then swiftly move on. But that's that's why they're, you know, entwined.
0: Hmm. Do you think part of the the tension, I suppose, that comes in between uh, Patrick and Martha is that there, as you described, sort of Patrick isn't family, but he has been sort of family adjacent for Mm -hmm. a good (laughs) part of Martha's life. So he sort of, there's a part of him, part of their relationship, which is almost like siblings, almost like cousins, and seems to provoke in both of them a certain familial obligation before a a sort of a romantic or uh, spousal uh, connection.
1: Yeah, that's yet, so interesting. I've never still noticed the, yeah. that before. I've never thought about that before. And sorry, I just spoke right over the top of you. But mm-hmm. I think it's it's because Patrick's in love with her from the first moment that they meet when he's about 14 and she's 17 or 16. And because she's 17 or 16, she doesn't even notice him. He's totally, mm-hmm. totally invisible to her, you know, because of that age gap in reverse. Um, and so... It's that thing, I suppose, that, you know, and this is not to compare myself to Jane Austen, but but <laughs> do you remember that part? In, um is it, which one is it? Is it Emma, where she feels like she's brother and sister with Mr. Knightley, and then she suddenly realises that's not how she feels at all. Is it that one? Hopefully listeners I, I, can I, I, correct you know, yeah, us. Yeah, but to she goes team. from this feeling like their brother and sister to suddenly realising she's in love with him. And that's what I sort yeah. of wanted to do with those two. But what drives Patrick the entire time. And this is why I don't so readily concur with the idea of him being the perfect man is that Mm. he is motivated by a total terror of going back to his original state which was alone that you know uh, being alone in the world was was where he came from and he fears going back to that place by losing that family Mm. and by losing martha and so everything that he puts up with and tolerates and literally cleans Mm. up after he does it because he just won't lose won't you know can't bear to lose her and he's sort of almost blinded by that and so his role in it and I always think there are two people you know really need to cooperate to ruin a marriage Mm. it's hard to do it on your own his contribution is to just accept and accept and accept and accept and to ignore and not to talk about and sort of pretend it's normal for your wife to throw a plate at you
0: I think that's one of the things isn't it with Patrick is that he he ticks all of the boxes for the, as you say, the perfect man or, you know, the mm-hmm. the good husband. And yet in some way what he needs to do, or, you whether know, he should have sort of overcome something to maybe untick a few of the boxes. Yeah, to, that's true. To, to, to give their yeah. relationship what, what it needs.
1: And I suppose in a way, in the same way that her kind of, you know, maturing into an adult is interrupted by her illness, establishing their relationship as teenagers you know I think that it's hard to move you know to let each other, whatever relationship you're in, to let each other right. grow up and to move beyond whatever your very original dynamic was. And so, I think mm-hmm. if he's been adoringly in love with her since you know he was a silent, nervous teenager, there's some element of that that gets carried forward. And sort of, mm-hmm. you know, he slightly overworships her and is in awe of her. And I, I think that just continues into it in a way that perhaps if they'd met at 30 and 34, um you know, it just doesn't happen the same way because you you have a slightly firmer grasp on who you are and your own self
0: yeah 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 and and yet that length of time as well gives such a sort of uh an anchor to their their relationship which perhaps meeting at 30 34 wouldn't have wouldn't have done
1: yeah I think I think so and because that was that was an intention of the very few intentions I had I did want To write a love story, even though I found it really difficult to actually ever Mm. call it a love story for the same aforementioned reasons of shame and mortification. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But to do it slightly differently and to do it where there was no spectacular meeting and there wasn't, Mm -hmm. you know, these fireworks or you know incredible sex and you know that period of absolute lust and there was mm-hmm. none of that it was just this very slow evolution to suddenly realizing that the only person she wanted to be with and I think she says it at one of the Christmases mm-hmm. that she suddenly realizes that in that moment he's the only person she wants to be with and then realizes that that's actually the rule um yeah universal
0: I'm going to um try and sort of step very carefully around the, the next few questions because it I want to talk a little bit about things that happen later in the book uh, about mm-hmm. how Martha perhaps comes to terms with her condition and things, but without obviously giving anything away. Yeah. To uh, although to maybe listeners. we should yeah. just
1: give things away because <laughs> honestly, I feel like I feel like it would be so. I've only talked about it once in the context of not being concerned with spoilers, and I think at this mm-hmm. point people could just turn the volume right down but because there is a lot you know if they haven't read it and want to read it fresh but in some ways it's it you know it is an interesting different way of talking about Mm. it with a sort of acknowledgement of of where she gets to well if it won't impact sales let's let's uh, just you know
0: i mean i'm actually genuinely of the belief that if something Something of sort of artistic worth can't really be spoiled, anyway, right? Because the oh, sort of well, you know good. We can talk about it, and the experience of talking about it will not mirror the experience of of, of reading it. So even if people well, let's see know what, what, happens. what
1: happens. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, <laughs>
0: so I, I suppose the thing I wanted to come to is this sense of, I, was, I in my notes I wrote it down as reasons to live, which feels a yeah. little bit um, a little bit glib. But there, we get to the point where. Where Martha has to has to decide, um, you know what, essentially, if to go if she's going to go on living and yeah. how um, yeah. she's going to to go on yeah. living, and there are, there are different um, different ways that she does it. But one of the insights, which perhaps surprisingly uh, to readers um, from from the you know the, the earlier stages of the book, comes from her her mother. Yeah. And and this idea of living for something. Yeah.
1: I think um, that's so, I've never thought about that before either. You're really helping me to kind of think (laughs) about it in a different way. I think that if I'm going to go on living is all before that diagnosis. So there's a scene where she Mm -hmm. talks about, you know, she's talking about it to Ingrid really blithely and realizes that she's never properly expressed or explained in a way that Ingrid understands that, every single day requires the decision to not die. And Mm -hmm. Ingrid can't quite believe it when she just says it and they're just watching television and, you know, drinking gin together. And and sort of Martha's so used to the fact of feeling like that that she doesn't even think it would be shocking to someone to, Mm. you know, or that someone wouldn't know what it is like to feel like that. But the how all comes after that diagnosis, because she doesn't know how to live not in that place. You know, she's never Mm -hmm. had a sort of stable emotional life or, you know, and I think I wonder if, I wonder if there's an almost, and I I really don't mean this in a glib way either, but like an addictive quality to, to the sort of, Mm. um, Or just an informing, like it's it's who you are, it's who she feels she is. And she almost couldn't Mm. live without that, you know, that cycle that she's caught in because that's what she knows of life and how it operates. So when she is suddenly given this explanation for everything, that's when she's got to figure out how to be and how to exist and how to be an adult for the first time aged 41.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, and that is the kind of click, isn't it? Cause she suddenly, she says, uh, I realized that what I had always believed to be true was the understanding of a sick child. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think, something, a very, very common experience is that we, and maybe this is connected to the roles we play in families and the uh, the sort of ideas we inherit, is that if things, if understandings go unquestioned for different reasons, then we suddenly realize, oh yeah, that is a perspective that was formed when I was seven years yeah, old. Yeah, and you don't you, and exactly you don't question
1: it, it, and especially because mm-hmm. it's that it's in a medical context. And mm-hmm. you know, if Martha was sixteen or seventeen, we're talking about the late nineties when there wasn't the internet. You know, there wasn't the sort of mm-hmm. avail- availability of information. And you, and also I think, and and I don't want to say as women, but I certainly as a woman myself, you are trained not to question authority. And especially Mm -hmm. in the medical context, you just would never assume a doctor could be wrong and that a doctor might have another motive for telling you something or that a doctor might be writing you off as hysterical and you're actually not Mm -hmm. hysterical. So there is that sort of element to it as well um, that all sort of has to be be worked out of what's true Mm -hmm. and what isn't true. But I think Mm -hmm. it was it sort of surprised me when Celia stepped in as the one to finally give Martha this talking to that turn, you know, that puts her on the slightly different path um, or that, you know, mm-hmm. becomes that pivot point because obviously Celia is essentially second only to Jonathan, Martha's first husband. I mean, she is just the pure villain up until that <laughs> moment. But then they sort of, you know, reach that, um, reach that moment. And we find out why it was that Celia sort of um has acted the way she did for all that time.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another thing which seems to kind of allow things to click into place a little bit for Martha is, um, and now slightly frustratingly in my notes, I can't, I haven't written who actually says this to her, but that somebody explains to her, I think it might, no, you'll have to tell me. I reckon uh, the, I'll know. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is everyone's tragedy. Just this That's idea. Celia. Of, uh, yeah. Yeah. again. Okay. In the letter, she,
1: uh, she sends a letter and that's part of it where she, she essentially mm-hmm. tells her, I think, no, or is it on the phone? It's, it either precedes the letter or it's in the letter. She basically tells her to mm-hmm. grow up and to understand that it yeah. wasn't just her affected by this, um, not yeah. her own special, unique tragedy.
0: Yeah. And then that again seems to be, you say, about growing up. That's sort of connected to that going from the, the child's way of thinking about things to the, the adult's way. in a a sense
1: yeah yeah exactly and to have to be sort of slightly pushed in that direction because we do all you know become quite static in in certain ways Mm -hmm. and we do sometimes need that outside person to just um give us a slightly less um you know sparing diagnosis in a way or or some sort of reflects in reality back in the areas that we have developed blind spots.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other, I suppose, and this is perhaps where um, uh, we'll we'll have to finish because we are running out of time is uh, in a conversation with Nicholas um, with so Nicholas, as you you said, is one of her cousins, but he occupies a very sort of specific place because he's an adopted.
1: Yeah. uh, Mm -hmm.
0: Cousin. And so he sort of has always, um, sort of he's been sort of closer to the family than Patrick in a way, but has also, also felt something there is, yeah, yeah, an absolutely. outsider.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and he makes the uh, reflection about his own life, but passes on to Martha, that everything is redeemable. And I felt when, when, when that sentence came up, and maybe maybe this is sort of my own psyche kind of, <laughs> sort of tapping into it, but I felt this enormous sense of decompression At that moment in the book, like it seemed there was something about the way I imagined that sentence resonating with Martha that uh, suddenly seemed to, to, I guess, kind of widen her vistas to allow uh, her to see kind of that the road she had taken, you know, she can't necessarily back off of it, but there at least there could at least be some uh, some turning she could take.
1: Well, because they also have a very intense, they've never been close. And then they have this very intense season together when he ends up, he's come out of rehab and moves into her family home with her. And this is just after she's divorced her first husband. So they're as lost as each other with nothing to Mm -hmm. do. And they start going on these long walks and become really close, more like a brother and sister and talk about things with each other that they haven't really been able to talk about. And those do become significant. She, I think she recalls some of the things he says like, that she needs to figure out why she keeps burning her own house down. But mm-hmm. what she would say up until that point and even onwards from that point is it's loss, it's loss, it's loss, it's loss. Mm-hmm. You know, things are irredeemably lost. This illness has cost her everything that she ever wanted. Mm-hmm. But she does then get to that place of a sort of redemption. And even though the novel isn't autobiographical in terms of my story you know, it doesn't mm-hmm. come out of me and I don't come out of it. But I had to learn about redemption mm. Um, in the course of the writing, because I really did think that my career was over. And it's not, you know, comparable, it wasn't such a tragedy, but um, it felt tragic to me. And I had to learn that, you know, through the arc of writing this book for a year, that there was mm. something else at the end. And I, I wouldn't have wanted to waste an entire year before, but out of it came something. And I think that's what where the hope was for me and where the hope in the ending such as it is that had kind of come out of it. And even if it's not true, gosh, I want to believe that it's true because otherwise what is the point of, of all of this mm. suffering It is, just feels pointless. And, and Celia talks about that in the letter too, that she needs to find a point and find a purpose. If, even if there's not one there, she needs there to be purpose to this suffering because otherwise it is just waste.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now it's kind of a um, a point of principle of mine never to evoke writers' autobiography when talking about a specific <laughs> book, but you 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 leave me with no choice, uh, Meg, because there's a moment um, where Martha moves to Paris, <laughs> and she works in an English language bookstore uh, near Notre Dame. Um, Isn't that amazing? So I, I,
1: just I pulled that out I, of thin I, air. <laughs> Before I start, I do have to say that I grew up in New Zealand and I learned French at school, but with a New Zealand teacher, she had never been to France in her entire life. And then when I moved to Australia and took up French again, on my very first day in that class, the teacher asked me a question out loud and I was meant to answer in French and I did. And she said, no, 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 in French. And I was like, oh, that was French. And she didn't actually recognize it. So I just need to say that as a disclaimer in terms of the pronunciation, which is to come in this section where Martha has just moved to Paris um, at the encouragement of her sort of, I guess, um, her friend who acts as a sort of fairy godmother to her peregrine, who has a little pedagree there that he encourages her to go and stay in while she's grieving for this this marriage that didn't go well. So here we go. I lived in Paris for four years and worked the whole time at an English language bookshop. So I'll just start again. I lived in Paris for four years and worked the whole time at an English language bookshop near the Notre Dame, selling lonely planets and paperback Hemingways to tourists who only wanted to take photographs of themselves inside the shop. My boss was an American who lived in its converted attic. He was trying to be a playwright. On my first day, he showed me where everything was, his tour culminating at the shelves nearest the door. He said, and all the reputable authors are here. I asked him where the disreputable authors were and he clicked his tongue against the roof of his mouth and said, We've got ourselves a live one to a doleful Danish girl who was serving out her last day. I slept with him for three and a half years and never loved him. Before he stuck up a sign banning la camera a la interior, I think you should be doing these bits Adam, and subsequently la iPhone and encore plus la baton de selfie, I was captured in the background of a thousand photographs sitting behind the counter reading new releases or looking at the slice of river visible between the buildings if the only new releases were crime or magical realism peregrine was the first person who visited me in paris and apart from ingrid the person who visited me the most only ever for the day arriving before noon and leaving late we would meet at a restaurant peregrine preferring one that had just lost a michelin star because he considered it an easy form of charity bucking someone up simply by lunching and he said in paris it was the only guarantee of attentive service whatever time of year it was we walked to the tuileries afterwards and from there along the river and up into the Marais are you really struggling not to correct me? It's okay, don't, no judgment. And the Sandra Pompidou, because the architecture depressed him, and onto the Picasso Museum, staying until Peregrine said it was time to find somewhere louche to drink Dubonnet before dinner. I measured out my time in Paris by Peregrine's visits. Probably he knew because he would never leave without telling me when he planned to return. And he always came in September on what he called the anniversary of my sacking by Jonathan, not by the magazine. I was happy whenever I was with him, even on those anniversaries, except for the year I was about to turn 30. Entering the forecourt of the museum, Peregrine said he had been finding my behaviour all day somewhat challenging. Thus, instead of going inside, we were going to walk all the way back, and he would describe his life at precisely my age, since I would find it a very grim picture, he said, I might stop feeling so despondent about mine and walking with dreadful rounded shoulders." On the street again, Peregrine brushed his coat sleeves and said, "'All right, well,' and we started walking." Let us think. My wife had just given me the boot, having found out that my tastes ran in a different direction, and while Diana said about making sure I didn't get none of our money or see the children again, I moved to London to the awfulest room in Soho, became partial to various substances, and was, in consequence, given the heave-ho by my magazine at the time. I was out of money in a day and forced to return to my family's seat in Gloucestershire, where I was very much unwelcome, both personally and as one of my kind, and there followed the nervous collapse. What do you think? I told him it was quite a grim picture and I was sorry that he'd been through it and sorry that I had never asked him about any life he'd lived before the present one. However, he said, the benefit of exile, one was forced to clean up one's act because Quaylude simply could not be got in Tewkesbury in 1970. I said, like pesto, and put my shoulders back. Peregrine took my arm and we kept going.
0: <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Now, you know, we we're all intrigued about this at the bookstore, you know. Did you spend time in Paris? Did you work at you know there are several English language bookstores in in our neighbourhood. It might not have been ours, or, or 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 is this sort of a wish fulfillment on on your part? Or
1: I spent time in Paris when I was living in London, but when I say time, ah. I mean individual days. I used to come ah. on the Eurostar with a friend, and we would go to Shakespeare and Co. and um, we would just look at it in wonderment and awe, and you know there are sort of (laughs) photos of me at various ages it's it's the first place that I go to whenever I am there which is not often but my daughter and I who was um she's now 18 but when she was 15 I took her there for the first time to London and you know and we went to Paris and that was the first place that we ended up and now there's pictures of her standing in front of it in wonderment so (laughs) it's very special and there are sort of it's, I hadn't noticed again how many bookstores make an appearance, not not necessarily mm-hmm. named or unnamed, but ones that were really significant to me, like at the end when Fergus, this stifled poet finally publishes a book, he's standing outside what I imagine to be daunt in Marleybone, mm-hmm. under which is also significant, and then there is A direct reference to Waterstones, Kensington High Street, which I'm so glad about because when I went to London last month for the first time, you know, since the book came out, I -hmm. went to that store to say hello. And I always assume that they won't have, you know, heard of me or necessarily read the book, but there was (laughs) their page you know, their reference was blown up in this enormous poster that highlighted it. And Martha goes there to buy a book about HTML. And I met them and they're like, can you come downstairs please to the computer section? And we took pictures of ourselves in front of the HTML book. So it was, it was all wonderful. And so I feel I feel equally, you know, amazed to be talking to you because it is, you know, it's there. It's very um, what is it? It's kind of hyper real somehow. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's
1: maybe it's just that where
0: where we will leave it is with that subject of books and writing because that also does feature as something that, in a sense, helps Martha through this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she's she heard we haven't mentioned this, but her job is as a, uh, a, a magazine journalist for for Waitrose Food um, Magazine and previously uh, Vogue and, and and a few others, but there is a moment where she finds a certain, I don't know if it's liberation, I don't know if it's succor, I don't know quite how I would describe it, but, but certainly something in the process of writing that, uh, among the other things we talked about, mm-hmm. helped carry her to a to a different place.
1: That's right. And there's also, I mean, even a direct scene where when everything has come to its end, in what her previous life was and what she was always working towards and wanting. She has literally nothing. She's now 30 something. She's back home with her parents and trying to, you know, Patrick is gone. Their furniture is in storage and she's trying to now figure out what to be. And that's when she sort of, I think to paraphrase Joan Didion, turns to the literature um, and kind of with nothing else kind of casts herself on that as to show me what to be, show me what to want, um you know show me how to live really and I think that it seems like a lot to put on books but I think most of us could probably name a time when all that we really had to reach for was a book um or you know a specific writer so I think you know some of it in a way when I was reflecting on it and you know before it came out and wondering how I hoped it would be received beyond by readers I wanted booksellers to feel or to notice Mm. that it is a love letter to bookshops because they have been there at particular times for me and I think yeah. in the same way for her including yours. well I can tell
0: you we <laughs> we have noticed that oh um, good, oh, good. <laughs> like that seems like the perfect place on on which to leave it uh Sorrow and Bliss is of course available from Shakespeare and Company uh from the bricks and mortar store from our website uh it's also available pretty much everywhere else but uh do buy it from a your local independent bookstore, course, um, if you're course. not going to be buying it from uh, from us. Um, all that remains for me to say is, Meg Mason, it's been such a pleasure today. Thank you for joining us on the Shakespeare oh, and Company my podcast. My goodness,
1: such an honour. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app, or just by sending the link to some of your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by our resident jazz supremo, Alex Freiman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. I'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.